Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 83. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Mike Luoma. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we get mean and nasty. And <laughs> then we dive into it and we explore what works, what doesn't, and we try to transform that raw idea, the raw materials into... Literary gold, yes. And you know we can get mean, we can get nasty, we can we can go ahead and, and throw on the gloves, but it's all in the in service of a higher purpose. Literary gold, indeed. Uh, Mike Luoma, host of the Glow in the Dark Radio podcast, author of the Alibi Jones series and the Vatican Assassin series. My friend, it has been a delight having you as the co-host on these adventures, and I'm glad to have you back, man. Thank you. It's great being here dave i I love this because i always get something out of it and i take it back for and use it in my own writing so this is this is fantastic exactly and and we kind of like get first cut because you know we we were hearing this before everybody else we're there we're we're in that moment which is kind of badass and and let and let's continue that badassery. Let's keep that badassery alive, shall we? And let's bring our guest host back on, uh, coming fresh from uh, a fabulous, insightful twenty minutes with where we explored horror and story uh, in equal measure. Uh, uh, returning now again to the big chair to help us workshop a tale, C W Karen Lassart. Karen. I, you know, we had you on the roundtable dialogues. We had a blast. The 20 minutes with was awesome. I am so pumped and excited to, to workshop a story with you, man. This is going to be awesome. I'm very excited. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you sit that chair very well. It's like you, like you were, that chair was made for you. So <laughs> I, I could actually, you know, if you wanted, we could probably get some swords and stick into the back and have it be like a Game of Thrones thing if you'd feel more, you know, <laughs> badass. That would be so cool. <laughs> Karen, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, 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 Grim Mistresses came out a while back. Of course, Ad Nauseam, uh, 13 Tales of Extreme Horror uh, is out there in the world. I'm, I'm curious what's coming up for you. Can you, can you, share just for a little bit uh, with our listeners what what's coming up in the world of C.W. Lassart? Ah, sure, yeah. This year I'm focusing more on my professional credits, so I don't have a lot coming out. I'm submitting to much tougher markets, markets that reject everybody. So not a lot coming out, but I did have a work come out last year that I'd like to talk about. I'm very proud of myself and two other South Dakota authors put together. We do the South Dakota convention, the anime convention together every year. And uh, we put together a little book that's got stories equal measures, all of us. And it's myself, Doug Murano, and Adrian Ludens. And we put together a nice little anthology of Stories written by South Dakota horror authors. It's called Gruesome Faces, Ghastly Places. That's a play on our Great Faces, Great Places state oh, motto. Okay. <laughs> and it's got really wonderful cover art. It's, it's Mount Rushmore done up as monsters. And we each put in, I think, four reprints and one original story and some of my favorite fiction that I've written. It's less extreme, more atmospheric, but really, really a great book. It's something that we put out together and we sell here in the state. We also sell on Amazon. And I just really, really love this book. It's some of my very favorite stories. Both those guys are amazing writers. And yeah, pick it up. It's really a great read. And, you know, people look at South Dakota, they don't think horror, but we can do it. Uh, we can do it. We'll show you. We can do it. And there's just really, really great Midwestern stories in there. That sounds awesome. Karen, what's, what's, what's the name of the story again? It's Gruesome Faces, Ghastly Places. Excellent. Available at all fine ebook stores, Amazon, and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah, check it out. That one's a good one. And like I said, um, just working really hard on getting some some better credits behind my name, some bigger names. So probably going to be quiet for a little bit until I get one of them suckered into buying my <laughs> Well, much respect for raising the bar on your career path, Karen. That's, that's you know, you, you've had a lot of success with the markets that you've been uh, submitting to. 
Uh, obviously, I mean, there's there's dozens of Karen uh, C.W. Lassart stories out there, and that's that's fabulous. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to say no. I'm I'm going for a higher level here. That's that's you're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> do you do you? I know you've got family and and work and so on uh, uh, at, at at Dempsey's, uh, but uh, do you do you make the conference scene? Do you go to conventions at all? Uh, I haven't for a couple years. My eldest needed braces, but I'm actually definitely planning to go to. Uh, used to be World Horror Convention was together with the Stoker Awards from Stoker Awards, but this year we're splitting off and we're doing our own convention, the Stoker Ooh. Convention. Awesome. Yeah, it's StokerCon and it's in Vegas this year. <laughs> Vegas, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Come next spring, I'm planning to go to Vegas. And the year after that's Long Beach. And our special guest is George R.R. R. Martin. Holy and crap. I will sell a kidney to get there. It may not be my kidney, <laughs> but I'm selling a kidney because <laughs> I'm going to touch him. I'm going to touch him. <laughs> touch him and get a signature. <laughs> I hear a horror story prompt in there somewhere. <laughs> I sold a kidney to see George R. R. Martin. Give <laughs> me my kidney, but I'm gonna—I'll find one. That's awesome. Well, in in Vegas, you're gonna have to hook up with Mercedes and uh, oh, have a grim mistress's reunion up there. That's badass. Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. I will put all of that awesomeness into the liner notes, Karen. That's that's great news, Mike. I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but I also know you're a mover and a shaker when it comes to story. What's uh, what what's what's doing in your world these days? Well, I'm still finishing up the latest Alibi Jones novel on the podcast. So if you go to glowinthedarkradio.com, you can check out my weekly podcast. And we're into the 30s. There's only like 37 chapters, so I've got six more to go. And and then we'll be done doing the podcast version of Alibi Jones and the Hornet's Nest is the, the latest Alibi Jones novel. But even if you haven't read the others in the series, you can pick this one up and just go for it. Which is kind of cool, the way you write those stories, because there is, if you read them in sequence, there is a continuity. There is an arc. There's a reason why Alibi Jones is at the hornet's nest, uh, uh, but it's not necessarily germane to the story that you're telling now. I do try to keep them one and done in that aspect as far as like a, a, a story, standalone story. But yeah, if you do read them all, you get the bigger arc. Okay. So it's kind of, it's, it's like Pulp Fiction. It's like a serialized Pulp story. It, it is kind of pulpy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's at glowinthedarkradio.com, right? Glowinthedarkradio.com. And, and while I've got that going on, I'm, I'm lettering my next comic book, which is going to be Red Hot issue number two. So that'll be coming out later this summer. Now, speak unto me of Red Hot. What is this? He is a young, up-and-coming superhero in a world where superheroes have been around since about World War II. And he wants to prove himself. His dad's been a superhero. His grandfather was one of the first ones. And when Red Hawk goes to try to stop this bank heist that's going on, the guy he runs into robbing the bank turns out to be the head of the team, the guy who started the superhero movement and started oh, superheroes. So he, he's like suddenly faced with the guy who should not be doing this. And so Red Hot is kind of like um, not looking good because when the authorities show up, it's not the mind man, the leader of the team that they're looking at. They're looking at Red Hot going, uh-oh, this <laughs> young guy is a villain. So that's where it sort of takes off from. Oh, man. Talk about impaling your character on the horns of a dilemma. Damn, son. That's awesome. Very cool. And this is this is issue two. Issue two is, is what I'm working on. There's, there's issue number one is out and there's also tales of the team, which tells some of the stories of these superheroes back in both the seventies and during world war two. Interesting. So you got some period pieces in there as well. Absolutely. I you love have, writing periods, uh, superhero stuff. That's fabulous, man. You have such a diverse canon of work. That's just bad. Friends, check out Mike Luoma and the badassery that he's putting out in the world. There's some awesomeness out there. Well, I will definitely make sure that uh, uh, the listeners can make with the clicky click on that goodness as well, Mike. So, God, this is awesome. Um, now, friends, here's the deal. We're, I'm going to take a pause now. We're going to go ahead and run some uh, podcast airtime for an ebook or a Kickstarter or some event that's awesome that's out there. And when we come back, Karen, Mike, I want to sit down with you guys and I want to workshop a story. What do you say? Absolutely. Sounds great. I couldn't agree more. Friends, don't you go anywhere. We're going to be right back. Even superheroes age. When Black Widow goes gray, Aquaman gets Alzheimer's, and someone's got to catheterize Wolverine. 
there's only one place capable of tending all their super senior needs. Elysian Springs, Adventures from the Nursing Home for Aging Superheroes, is the first anthology from Pendragon Press, and we need your help to get it flying. What's in it for you? Ten tales from authors like Gail C. Martin, T. Morris, and Jared Axelrod, plus a ten-page comic by artist Jason Strutz, all of them aggregated by Intergalactic Medicine Show assistant editor Lauren Scribe-Harris. And you won't want to miss the exclusive Kickstarter swag. From t-shirts and staff IDs to parking signs and personalized accident reports, let me tell you, it's awesome. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Kickstarter and support Elysian Springs, adventures from the nursing home for aging superheroes. We changed the Joker's bedpan so you don't have to. Welcome back, dear friends, and now it's time to get down to the reason that you're here and the reason that we're here. The story workshop, the brainstorm extravaganza, the bright froth that brings all of us together here in the potosphere to the round table, table place. Yes, that's it. <laughs> and friends, our guest writer for this episode is a writer and translator from the suburbs of Chicago. She's a graduate of Second City's improv and writing programs and has studied abroad in France and Britain. Her most recent production is the sketch comedy show, get this guys, An Evening of Comedy Without James Franco. Does that not make you want to go see this thing? <laughs> That's fabulous. And although she's continually drawn to write for the stage, she has been known to dabble in writing short urban fantasy fiction. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Sarah Celian. Sarah, ma'am. You, you, you've you've been through the Second City Improv Writing Program. You're probably no stranger to pitching story ideas, but I know no matter how many times you do it, there's always this uh, bit of terror on the fringe. So much respect for you, and thank you for, for laying the table for our workshopping feast, ma'am. We appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for making the table. That's, yes! Or, yeah. <laughs> The round table. Thank you. <laughs> now, now you write urban fantasy. Um, I do. Uh, what, I like writing fantasy, but I'm terrible at world building. Okay. So I, Hence the urban part. Yeah. yeah okay. I cheat a little. <laughs> All right. Is is there anything out there in the world that people can consume? Uh, no, I haven't been published yet. Okay. That involves finishing things. Ah, yes, the the writer's curse. <laughs> I can finish the script, but I can't finish a short story or a novel. So, well, well keep writing the scripts then, and and that's. I got to tell you, Sarah, I am so excited. Uh, friends, Sarah has brought not a story, not a novel, not an audio play, not even a song. She has brought a play. For workshopping here on the round table. I am so excited. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. Uh, so let's get into that. Sarah, you know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. Uh, give us the title. The I, I guess it's a theater piece. So I guess genre is a factor in there. Uh, uh, and your, your audience, who you're shooting it for. Give us a tagline. Any thematic uh, insights you can share with us. Uh, introduce us to the world if there's something unique there. The characters, the, the tent poles of the story. And we will be off into a frothing, brainstorming maelstrom. I'm, I'm done talking. I'm getting out of the way. Ma'am, the mic is all yours. All right. Uh, so the title of this play, well, the working title, is The Brilliant Detective's Stupid Friend. Um, it is, as you said, a play, uh, and it's a mystery slash comedy. Uh, the hook is, when the world's most brilliant detective dies, his bumbling sidekick must find a way to continue solving cases without him. Um, I haven't quite nailed down the theme yet, because I tend to do that after I finish the first draft, but... Um, I'm definitely looking at some themes of like grief and loss and how to continue on after someone's gone and how to become your own person uh, once you're outside of somebody else's shadow. Um, the setting is the real world, surprisingly enough, uh, probably the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, post-World War II. Uh, if I had to pick a city, I would pick Chicago 
but I think it'd be more kind of a generic city setting. Um, the characters, I'm going to introduce a supporting character first. Our supporting character is Jonathan Morris. He's a brilliant detective, but a terrible businessman. He dies in the first scene, um, and the Morris we see in the play is uh, the protagonist's memory of him, who acts as a guide to solving cases and also as a way for him to deal with his grief. The protagonist is Harry Parker. He was Morris's bumbling sidekick. Uh, he has no family. He was lost after the war, so Morris, an old friend of his from the army, hired him to work as his assistant. Uh, Morris was terrible with the business side of things, and Parker was very good with it, so he kept the lights on. He was good at comforting the grieving widows, making sure they actually got paid, things like that. Whereas Morris worked on intuition and flashes of brilliance, Parker is the kind of person that needs to carefully lie out all the assembled evidence and think the whole thing through. Uh, his weaknesses are grief. He's very sad at losing Morris. Um, this was a very close friend of his. They lived together. Uh, he didn't really have anybody else in the world, so this is kind of him losing his whole family. He's overly trusting. He's vulnerable because he's alone and without a way to support himself. He starts the story unsure of himself and despondent and ends it confident and optimistic about the future. He's most afraid of being alone. He thinks that what he wants most is Morris back, but what he really wants is a purpose, which is something Morris gave him. Our antagonist is Lucy. She was a super fan of Morris's, and she can't believe that he's dead. So she's trying to bring him out of the woodwork by concocting these murder mysteries for him to solve. She presents herself to Parker as if trying to solve the murder of her neighbor, who secretly she killed, although she has framed somebody else for the murder. When that doesn't work, she begins concocting more and more difficult murders in an attempt to get Morris to admit he's still alive. Uh, she starts the story confident and ends in failure and is arrested. Uh, she's really good at manipulating people. She's a higher class kind of lady, and she's a collector. So she sort of has this plan for her life, and Morris was part of that plan, and she wanted to collect him along with a lot of other things she collects, like houses and things like that. And so his death is very inconvenient for her in that sense. Uh, the brief outline, it's a three-act play. So in the first act, Morris dies in a brief, over-the-top opening scene. A few weeks later, we find Parker alone in his office, lost in grief. He can't take new cases, but also can't bring himself to close up shop and find another job. Lucy enters and says she has a case for him. Parker initially refuses because he isn't a detective, but Lucy insists that Morris promised her he would help her at any time before he left for the war. Parker is intrigued because he's never met anyone who knew him Morris before the war. He also feels obligated to keep Morris's word now that he's gone. He agrees to help her with the case. Lucy then presents the first case, which Parker solves in air quotes because he finds the person Lucy has set up as the fall guy. Um, and this in this act will be introduced to Memory Morris, who kind of guides Parker through solving the murder. In Act 2, Lucy presents Parker with the second case, which he again solves in air quotes. Parker agrees to the second case more because he's interested in solving the mystery of Lucy. The details she's given him about Morris and her relationship with him don't add up with his own experience. And I think this would be a good time for Parker to have an argument with Memory Morris. Like, who were you really? Why don't I know this about you? And finally, in Act 3, Lucy presents Parker with the third case, which he solves correctly. Lucy is the murderer and has been all along. Parker realizes that he can continue without Morris, both as a detective and as a person. He says goodbye to his memory. And that's all I've got so far. Oh, that's fabulous. There's, there's, there's story food and exploration to be undertaken on this one. I'm, I'm curious, what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so of, of brainstorming awesomeness? Uh, some of the blank spots are right now Lucy. Her character isn't as well-defined as the others. Um, a little bit about Morris's past and also the murders themselves. Okay. I've never really written mystery before, so <laughs> setting up a case. Do you see why I asked Karen Lassart to be on this, <laughs> this oh, workshop? absolutely. Karen, you, that's your job, okay? <laughs> we, we, need, we need some good murders and other story goodness, of course. All right, cool. I think we can help with that, Sarah. But before we do, uh, uh, we need to cover our ass. Mike, would you would you be so kind, sir? Absolutely. 
Sarah, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Karen might be complete bullshit. (laughs) This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside, okay? Okay. Good. Okay. Whew. <laughs> I can't help. I, I, this is like episode 83 of the workshop. And every time I hear that disclaimer, it makes me laugh. <laughs> I, I think it's that liberation of, I can say bullshit and they've been warned. It's all good. <laughs> You're free now. Exactly. Exactly. Which is the way a good brainstorm workshop should be, should be uh, established. So uh, as is our custom, we start off with a quick once around the table for just some quick first impressions and any questions. Questions of clarification we might have, and we always start with our guest host. So, Karen Lassart, start us off. What are your What are your first impressions of Sarah's uh, story idea played dramatis personae? Uh, and do you have any questions for to help you get a better grip on the story? Absolutely. Um, sounds interesting. I would go see that play. Um, I'm not super familiar with the format. Is is three acts short? Uh, I think it's pretty typical. I mean, you can do three to five acts. You can make an act oh. as long as you want. Okay. So, And also, I would wonder, is the inference towards Sherlock Holmes and Watson intended? Yeah, it's definitely that trope. You know, the brilliant detective okay. and the stupid assistant. Okay, good. Because if it's intended, it's wonderful. If it was not intended, it would probably be embarrassing. <laughs> that might be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely. No, I think it sounds good. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Okay, cool. Mike, what about you? First impressions and any questions you have? I was curious about the character of Memory Moritz, is, and and is he like the ghost of of our main character? Is is he Jonathan's ghost throughout this whole thing? He's not a real ghost. Um, so he's sort of he's on stage, and Parker will react as if he's really there, but other characters won't. Okay. So he's just sort of his memory of him, but in a way that the audience can see it. All right. I'm not sure sense. that's clear. Okay. I got it. Okay. All right. It is now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Anything else? Uh, no, I, I, I like how, how how it develops. Yeah, I do too. There's 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 wonderful layers of of this, and and what I think entices me the most about it is that there's discovery about Morris. There's discovery about Parker and there's discovery about Lucy. And and I think that might be something for me anyway that I really want to explore in the workshop itself is Lucy's arc in this uh, uh, and, and how she unfolds. I, I, a couple of questions or observations. Um, I, I caught on the whole Sherlock Holmes and Watson thing as well. Um, but you're also setting this in the 40s and 50s. And, and why did you pick that era? Uh, two reasons. One, I don't want them to have the internet. So, <laughs> Bonus, okay. <laughs> um, I also am very interested in that post-war period, so either after World War One or World War Two, where you come back from war and everything's changed for you, but not for everybody else. So everything's in flux. Okay, so how, how soon after World War Two is this taking place, do you think? Well, I would think that Parker and Morris got together right when they got back from the war, and this they've probably been together for four or five years. Okay, so right around 1950 then. Yeah, roughly, yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, another thing that, that really, two things that really caught my uh, attention was the idea of Memory Morris uh, uh, and what he represents because he's, because he's a memory, he's going to be a reflection of all of Parker's preconceptions and emotional uh, uh, spin points about Morris. And rarely are those memories and preconceptions and emotional spins authentic or accurate or true. They're true for the person, but they don't reflect the character. So I can really see an intriguing evolution of memory Morris changing and evolving as Parker's awareness expands and grows into who and what Morris really was. So that's intriguing. 
The other thing that interested me, uh, and I don't know if you have any information on this, is you mentioned that Lucy says that she knew Morris from before the war. Did she really? I have two thoughts on that. Uh, one is that she didn't. The other is that she could be possibly his fiance that he sort of dumped hmm. when he got back the old pen pal fiance. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, and and because you're rocking that that uh, uh, that Sherlock vibe, and God, we need to be. I guess that's the other question: is where's where's the comedy in this? Do you see, Sarah? Where where is where are the opportunities for hilarity? So. I suspect this would probably be more of a dramedy because I tend to write slow comedy where it's not a laugh a minute, but it's a laugh every 10 minutes. Okay. okay. Um, but definitely in Morris, uh, sorry, not Morris Parker trying to figure things out and he's completely inept. So he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, but also I think in, I think some of Lucy's character will add to that and just sort of her confidence in the way she can sort of push him around. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he's so, I guess, unconfident would be the word for that. <laughs> sure, sure. Impressionable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome, awesome. No, I. Th- this, there's there's lots of story food here. I'm loving this. All right, let's dive into this. Um, Karen, where do you want to dive in here? What's, what, uh, uh, what, what kind of, what, what aspect of this story do you want to first sink your teeth into? Um, maybe Lucy. Yeah. Uh, in- in your description, she is the least three-dimensional character that we're coming across. Yeah. And I wonder if I might give some advice to you as you're writing this, that to me, Lucy, Lucy's a psychopath. I mean, she's clearly got sociopathic tendencies. So have you ever read it, read up a little bit on sociopaths and their habits? I think it might be beneficial to the character as a motivation because she's clearly selfish and narcissistic. That'd be reading I could do. Yeah, I haven't, but... That might be a good idea, yeah. Do you have any texts, Karen, that you could recommend? Absolutely. The Sociopath Next Door is one of my favorites. You can get that on Amazon, ebook. Uh, that's very, very, it keeps you out of the deep psychological language, but not only would it be helpful, it would also help you to pinpoint sociopaths in your own life. I'm very fascinated <laughs> by abnormal psychology. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because she has to have motivation, and it sounds like her motivation is. She's not willing to have him be gone from her life, whereas yes. Parker is more missing him. And and yes, he needs him. But hers sounds a lot more selfish. So to me, that's a very sociopathic stance. And I think it might help you paint her as a character. Honestly, sociopaths aren't three dimensional people. They're very two dimensional people. But as you were reading, I kind of saw her as Cruella Deville in my head. <laughs> it might help you flesh out the character a little more to understand the motivation. That's intriguing. I had a thought that maybe if Moritz Morris dies like accidentally at the start. I wasn't sure whether it was an accident or That was a, a question I had. Yeah. How did Morris die? What what what's the scenario for that? Um these way I have it plotted out now is that he meets his arch nemesis and there's this very cartoonish sort of, I've caught you, aha, and they both... Oh, a Moriarty kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, what I was thinking is that Lucy should not only be angry that she couldn't get her hands on on Jonathan, but rather she could even be like, I should have been the one who killed him. Oh, dude, maybe she did. Maybe she, she stalked him. And, and, you know... No, but I think that might cut her motivation, Dave. You know, if she's, you need her to still be staging these these murders in the in the second and third act, so she can't have killed him if she's trying to get him back. Well, but what if what if she's seriously delusional? You know, what <laughs> if she doesn't believe he's dead? Exactly. Yeah. You know. You know, it's a mysterious death. He he fell off a building or whatever, and there was never a body. You know, maybe it's a Reichenbach Falls type of thing, and ooh, which which again ties in very nicely to that whole Sherlock subtext. And, and, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's a mysterious death or she's so delusional that she can, she, she goes into utter denial. In fact, she has a psychotic break and, and denies that memory. And part of Morris or uh, Parker's healing is going to be part of Lucy's healing as well. That as, as, as Parker understands Morris more to the point where he can actually let go of his friend and step out from his shadow that Lucy is also brought to a point where she can finally confront the cause of her psychotic break and 
there's redemption there of a sort. I don't know. I, I, I toss that out there as an option. Uh, uh, but but carry on with your thought, Mike. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, dude. No, that was that was basically it. I wondered if if he had been killed and if if she was maybe denying the fact that that he was dead because she didn't get to kill him. Yeah, that's that's now, that, what, that was just kind of where I was going with that. What I'm curious about is why isn't anyone why isn't Parker you know taking up the mantle if you know if Moriarty in air quotes killed uh, uh, Morris. Why isn't Parker helping with the investigation? Why isn't he seeking justice? Well, fake Moriarty is dead. I'm going to call him fake Moriarty. Okay, uh, fake Moriarty. They die at the Good. same time. They ah, okay. Each other, they both die. I gotcha. I gotcha. One of those. One of those dark resolutions. Okay. I don't know. I'm. I'm <clears throat> I kind of like having Lucy be involved in some way with that. Uh, uh, and and have her complicit in that. It would be a great, you know, Act Three reveal. Of of you know, holy crap! Uh, here's here's a piece of information about Morris's death that I didn't understand. And if if he she is indeed a jilted lover, you know it it sounds you know you you have Parker set up as this. He's the guy that handles the emotions. He comforts the widows. He does all the human things that that Morris just didn't have time for because he's off being fucking brilliant. Uh, so. The notion. I like the jilted lover. Yeah, because that. Well, because it it also gives us a chance for Lucy maybe to impart some knowledge of Morris to Parker that humanizes him because he's kind of got Morris built up like this perfect guy, and maybe Lucy will help show him that Morris was also fallible and human, which in a way will help him deal with his own ineptitude and eventually let Morris go. Sure. And and as she shares more and more information, she might let just enough details drop that Parker can actually investigate and do some detective work with. And in doing so, discover more than maybe Lucy intended. So maybe ironically, the more detective work he's doing is the way he learns to become a detective is by investigating Lucy rather than exactly the, the murders. murders. Right, right. Interesting bit of ir- irony there. You know, she she's leading him by the nose for the first two murders, and then at you know at the end of Act Two, he's doing research in a file cabinet, of course, because we have no internet. Um, and uh, you know, he flips open a folder, and his eyes go wide and fade to black. Cut to intermission. Then we come back, and we go into the next murder. It's a place, so maybe he goes, "Holy!" <laughs> <laughs> Curtain. But I, I was also thinking in terms of the play, you could have the, the character of Memory Moritz kind of like fade into the background as as the acts go on, as as Parker's becoming more his own man. Maybe Ooh. he has to like look for for Morris in the scenery, like all of a sudden he's not finding him, but he's over there by the bookcase and he has to coax him out. Nice. Or or early on, they're they're talking face to face, and as you say, maybe literally in the background, he's now he's he's starting to stand behind, and they're just talking. You know, Parker talks out, and and Morris is behind him. He's no longer dress, addressing him directly anymore. As as that re- realization and that healing process continues, I like that. That's that's a nice visual. Yeah, I definitely want there to be a scene where he starts to explain something, and Parker's like, "No, I got it." <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly absolutely cool because I, I was thinking at some point he shouldn't we need to convey that he's not a ghost he's a memory and by him no longer seeing him that pulls away it shows his growth but it also lets us know this is not a real entity that he's speaking to this is his own memories this is he's projecting morris morris doesn't exactly Exactly. And to do that, we're probably there, there, there's going to need to be an early revelation of some kind. You know, maybe maybe in, in the opening of Act One, he's he's talking to Morris, uh, blah, 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 and going through some of his stuff and, you know, go, taking a trip down memory lane as he looks through his desk drawer, or some of his books. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize you didn't this or, or had that and have memory Morris maybe like change a costume element or drop off a ring or something or some aspect that shows that this is a memory reflection as, as you say Karen not a ghost does that make sense that makes sense yeah okay. I'm trying to think we can do lighting and things like that too sure Could, oh absolutely it can help. I, 
I see him being in more faded colors. Like I see him very brightly costumed in the beginning, like he's alive, and I see him being more faded. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. That's awesome. Yeah, and and maybe even simpler clothes. You know, lots of lots of ornaments and and accoutrements uh, early on, and then as the play wears on, more bland, more drab. As as memory, you know, f- fades and blurs. Yeah. So yeah, that's badass. I like that. So, and also, and, he becomes more human. He becomes more plainly dressed. Sure. He becomes a real person rather than this idealized memory that, that Parker has held of him. Yeah. Which is which is why I think Lucy really does need to have some kind of genuine background with Morris that she can impart to Parker. You know, maybe it's a case where Morris couldn't see the the, the psychopathology that Lucy has because it doesn't it doesn't play itself out in a way that his intuition could see but her psychopathology is obvious or more obvious to parker because he has a much more methodical logical step by step approach to things i, I can don't know. see that no i could see that or or the opposite could be true I'm, and i always do this mike this is this is not an invalidation this is just oh. hey let, let's try a 180 here maybe he absolutely knew she was a psychopath and that's why he was staying close to her was here's an opportunity to study a psychopath. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And (laughs) and then ultimately once his studies were complete, he spurns her Uh, or maybe, Oh no, better. (laughs) He sends her to the, she's been in jail. She's been in jail. She, or, the or, nut house. Yes, better than nut house. Yes, the asylum. The way of yes, exactly, exactly. And she continues to hold this torch for him. Oh, he was clearly, you know, deluded or or whatever. You just didn't know the real me. Yeah, yeah. All of those, all of those things. But I mean, there's and again, what we're I think what we're doing is we're kind of laying down these these clue breadcrumbs that Parker can unearth as the story goes on. Uh, uh, that that can serve to as as revelations both of Morris and of Lucy because really there's there's one two three we've got five mysteries going on in this story which is really kind of badass we got the three murders and then we have Lucy and we have Morris uh, and, and Parker is this wonderful pivotal point for all of those and and. You know, kudos, Sarah. I think that I think the story structure is is outstanding and, and has a lot of story legs. Well, thanks. Absolutely, I I agree. It's very interesting. I would buy a ticket in a minute. <laughs> so let's talk about the murders a little bit, just to just to just to indulge ourselves in a bit of bloodthirsty mayhem. Uh, uh, did you have any ideas, Sarah, in terms of uh, obviously the first one is a fairly straightforward murder and the second one is more exotic and then the third one is just completely batshit crazy? So, yeah, basically that. I did have one idea that perhaps they could be like, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, sort of like tropes, like the locked room mystery would be the first one and... Ooh, that should be the yeah. last one, though. I mean, oh, those yeah. are always those are always the the weirdest, the most impossible to to to, to solve. I'd, I'd say save the locked room for the last one and have the first one be something a little bit more like uh, a suicide that's actually a murder, maybe or a jilted yeah. lover that's easy to figure out. I don't know. Yeah, that, yeah. that might be too close, though. Oh no, the jilted lover's perfect, Mike, because that's that because that is. <laughs> Then we go back to the beginning to solve the end. Exactly. I mean, and 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 if 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 Morris did jilt Lucy, then having that be the the catalyst for this latest endeavor of hers is is perfect, and she would see the symmetry of that. That would be that would be perfect for her, and and a good kickoff. I like that. Maybe she's Lucy is you know like I've said a psychopath. Maybe she has a rich lover, and she poisons him and pins it on his wife. Ooh, there you go. But but, but the Parker would not know that she was right. The gentleman's the lover, lover, not at yeah. first. But as we go on towards the end, as he's unraveling the other two murders and realizing that she set him up, then we go all the way back to the beginning and realize, you know, jealous wife, not really. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, and and or or we never find out who the the uh, the mistress was in this scenario. And and Parker can put together clues that real, and he realizes that Lucy was the mistress that instigated the the first one. And there's another revelation of holy crap, this woman is messing with me. 
and and you know again reveals and revelations and and character shifts and turns. I like that. So a jilted lover for the first murder, locked room, exotic locked room madness for the third one. Uh, second one. I'm not really familiar with mysteries. I'm trying to think of all my Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> uh, how about a serial killer? Let's stick with something you know, Karen. <laughs> but wouldn't that be too big for the stage? Because a yeah. killer by nature would be more than one murder. Well, yeah. Although or it could, could be a copycat killing. Could be a copycat killing. Could be um it, it could be, you know, a serial killing that has been going on, uh uh or or you know three, four deaths in the newspapers and, and we can have that set up and highlighted in, in act one so the audience is prepared for it. And then act two uh, you know, we can bring in, we haven't mentioned any other collateral characters, but there could be uh, a, a police sergeant or captain or someone that, that comes and says, Parker, can you help me out here? Uh, and, and of course, she's, he's being manipulated by Lucy to make sure that he comes in. I got a phone call or whatever, um, but get him in there. And Lucy has been, has created a serial killer basically for this scenario, which is uber creepy. Okay. And maybe if we're, Going that way, maybe it is a case that Morris had been working on and unable to solve. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Which would explain why Lucy would be involved from the beginning, because she's fucking with Morris then, too. It's it's not just Parker. Sure, sure. So what if she got out, right, from her jail or mental institution? She sets up this serial killer to trap Morris, and then he has the gall to die. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> but shouldn't that be the last murder then? To me, that's grand. That's big. Serial killer, you know, one murder, what? fine. Serial killer, what? that sounds like the whole plan right there. I mean, that sounds mm. like discovery. That sounds yeah, like but, third but murder. But discovery to me. doesn't come until the, the end, so. Oh, I, I, would mean, I would Locked personally. I would personally. Locked room two, serial killer three. Okay. Okay. I was going to say the idea we, that she was setting up the murders to try to get him. Sure. All along. Is right. That's her character. Right. And that, and then that would tie it all together. That would work. That would work. I would say for the locked room, whether it's two or three, have it take place in an asylum. Have it take place in the asylum. Oh yeah. Where she was. Yes. She needs another name because obviously she's not, she's out of the asylum. She's not operating under the name that the asylum knows her by. And she probably looks a little different too. She's, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. She she probably has many, many pseudonyms and nom, nom de guerres. She's going to be classy. She's going to be charming. Mm-hmm. She's going to be knowledgeable in the ways of society and, and uh, uh, papers and documents and so on. Because she's obviously, I mean, she's been following and pacing Morris all this time. So her intimate familiarity with the shadow world of crime and and corruption and and evil uh is going to be well versed so she can she can easily find papers and documents and and killers and thieves and and anything that she needs to to set up these these elaborate murders yes she's clinical and very intelligent too Right. You know what's cool though is moving. I was just thinking, if you move the the locked room to Act Two, it's going to make the audience think, "Oh, I recognize this," and it gives it almost a sense of predictability that it doesn't deserve, which is cool. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it's sort of like, "Hey, we're done." Oh no, there's a third act. It's it's like in Poltergeist when when you know the short the lady, house is clean. The house is clean. <laughs> oh, you bitch! You're so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you make the audience feel a little superior. They yeah. begin to feel like this is trite. I know what's going on, and then yes, smack yep. them in the face at the end. <laughs> yeah, and and you could even have this kind of of uh, false resolution uh, uh, in there, where you know, part of the grieving process, I, I think, involves uh, a point of self delusion, where it's so important that you're healthy that you fake it, that you say all the right words and do all the right things, and you really haven't processed everything that needs to be addressed uh, uh and and parker could reach that point in act two and it's like i'm i'm good i you know these solving these crimes has been good for me i feel good but he really isn't and, maybe the and, argument he has with moritz at the end of act two 
is Morris trying to warn him about Lucy and Parker going, no, 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 this, this, this is okay. I think I know what's going on here. Nice. Yeah. And have that actually be, you know, you've always tried to tell me I'm wrong and I'm not. And, and just get the hell out of here. And, and God, and then that sets up a wonderful resolution between memory Morris and Parker at the end when the full revelation is there and you've got full healing. Yeah, you have the fight, and you're not even who I thought you were anyways. And then when we get to the end, it's softer, and it's, you're not who I thought you were. But yeah. it's okay. It's okay that you're not who I thought you were. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to go on. I like that. I like that. There's there's symmetry there and, and progression and growth. Uh, there's an authenticity there. It's it's. This is definitely going to be a dramedy, Sarah. This, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lighthearted side of sociopathy. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, it's fine. I'll probably write it as a drama and go back and put comedy in. Okay. Oh, be surprised where you can fit comedy. There's plenty of physical comedy you can put in, especially if he's bumbling like you say he is. You know, maybe he tries to be a little smooth with Lucy, and he's a terrible failure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and of course that would be one of the one of the grief mechanisms would be the impersonation of the person you're trying to hold on to. Yeah, you know, I'm going to try and fill his shoes. Yes, hello, hello. Would you like a martini? Crash. Oh, crap. <laughs> Maybe he himself dresses a little more flashy because Morris is a little more flashy in the beginning. Maybe he tries to be him and just be Mr. Joe Cool, and he's not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of his his arc of discovery is is acceptance of, of what he is and discovery that out of his shadow, he is actually a person of, of gifts and talents. Uh, that can be applied in a meaningful way. That's awesome. Uh, uh, we're we're approaching the end bits here, but we've got a little bit of time left. Sarah, where 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 would you like us to explore? Have is there anything that you're you're feeling we need to dig in a little bit deeper on? I think I've got a lot better handle on Lucy, so thank you very much for that. <laughs> I can never get her to behave. I guess maybe we could talk about uh, balancing memory Morris with real Morris. Because he was dead when I created him. So <laughs> I never killed him off. It's not like I made him up and then killed him. He was already dead. So I don't really have an idea of what he was like before well, he was dead. I've always seen him through Parker's eyes. Right. Well, I think the challenge that you're going to have with that is because you have such a strong Sherlock Holmes and Watson vibe going on here. Uh, uh, but you've also got this rich pulp noir 40s and 50s uh, era to play with. So I, I, I think, you know, an examination, uh, you know, maybe, maybe spending some time with some Humphrey Bogart movies and some James Cagney movies and, and really immersing yourself in that noir aesthetic and then finding ways, parallels in the noir environment that, that mirror or, or at least touch on the aspects of Sherlock Holmes that, that people recognize. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. You, you know, and that you won't be not, a problem. <laughs> you might not want to um, outline the living Jonathan too much because of the Sherlock Holmes analogy or, or the, you know, that he's such an analog for Sherlock Holmes. It, it almost gives the audience the same feeling that Parker has that, Oh, I know this guy. And you really don't. And you really don't. That's a good point. Yes. That's a very good point. Although, it would, and to, to to pull that off, Sarah, I, I you know do do whatever character markup you do. I don't know if you do any sort of character sketches or or background sheets or something like that to 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 guidepost you as you write these these plays. But but be very clear about your understanding because your understanding right now is mostly of memory, Morris. And and hold on to that because that'll be you know the instigator and and the, the the structure for most of Act One and part of Act Two, but then go ahead and do your research for actual Morris. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like Morris was something of a prick because uh, <laughs> he played with a sociopath. He played with Lucy, and then cast her aside. Uh, uh, you know, he sounds like he 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 obviously didn't have a strong emotional compass he's arrogant yes yeah he's very arrogant but and he's dapper so what did he do during the war i think would be a good question Ooh, yeah was he a spy espionage i could see that yeah probably or, or better counter espionage mm. 
uh, uh, you know, working behind enemy lines and constantly being deceptive uh, uh, and, and always being right, you know, uh, except for maybe one time that, that he and got maybe, it. Maybe Parker's job in the war was to ferry his messages back to the superiors. I mean, Parker's was very much a secondary role in the war, too. Very quiet, very, you know, I'm going to take the information back to our officers. Sure, he was the contact. You know, yeah. he, he was the message drop. He was the carrier. Okay. You know what? That 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 can take it to a meta level because you can say, okay, if Parker's carrying messages, he's the Hermes. He could be the psychopomp that's carrying the soul of Moritz into the next world. So in a way, solving all of this takes that through this process. Dude, that's heavy. And it's You're true. really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... I love that. That's absolutely true because you know the only reason that 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 Morris was able to be as awesome as he was in 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 counter espionage was because Parker was there to carry the messages to people that can actually do something with the information. You know, he wasn't James Bond saving the world single-handedly. He was a, a deceiver who was just eyes and ears deep in the heart of enemy territory uh, uh, and ferrying intel out. And it was Parker and, and the Allied forces that actually used it to good advantage. He relied on Parker as much as Parker relied on Morris. But Ex- Parker's never seen that. He's never recognized that. Exactly. And they were both in service of, of a higher justice, a higher purpose. Uh, uh, but Morris got lost in that purpose uh, uh, to the exclusion of the human connection, whereas Parker, his job has always been connecting humans and being uh, uh, a ferryman, as you say, Mike, the the, the Hermes, the messenger, uh, and connecting people in that way. God, this is getting heavy. Yeah. <laughs> this is metaphorical. I'm liking can this. I, can I bring up a point about the end that's yeah. sitting Absolutely. in my head? Because like we discussed last week, I really enjoy circular writing. Mm, yes. So maybe in our last scene, maybe, okay, Parker is saying goodbye to Morris. Maybe he's sitting at the desk. Maybe he lets Morris go. Morris disappears, leaves the stage. And maybe we end with a young female assistant coming in. And she's his new assistant. Oh. And she's, and we end with her saying, you know, that he has another case. And so we have him letting Morris goal, but we also are able to see that we've come full circle. Now he's the detective, and now he has this new assistant. I don't know why she's female, but she just is in my head. And she's cute. <laughs> little nerdy thing. Yeah. And she's kind of bumbling. Yeah, yeah. I like that. And, and kind of meek, and maybe she looks up to Parker, you know? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's where you end, because now you've come full circle. Yeah. He's and- grown as a person, and you've come full circle back around. You know, and, and, you know, he solved all of these murders, whether he solved them incorrectly. Now, with, with Lucy being exposed as the true nemesis, he's got a bit of fame and popularity. And, and part of that is built on his legacy with Morris, but it's also now he is that legacy. And as that, he can stand on his own but still serve his friend. He's out of the shadow. Exactly. And, and one last thought that I wanted to toss out there was the notion of romance between Parker and Lucy. Oh, I thought of that too. Yeah. And and I, I we're running out of time, so I don't know how deep we can go into that. But I just want to put that on the table. And and it doesn't have to be, you know, true love or or even uh anything more than a, a flirtation and a confused set of emotions on maybe both their parts. Because uh, I can see Lucy projecting Morris onto Parker in some way. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't know. I, well, Parker wanting to be Morris. And so he wants to have Lucy because Morris did. Sure. Right. Sure. And, but and, Lucy's calculating. Lucy will play on that. And she's going to oh, yeah. be seductive and sexy mm-hmm. and drop that hanky for him to pick up. You know, I mean, she's going to be that siren. Sure. Which that's where she decides she can play bumble. him. Yeah, and it's going to make him bumble even worse because he's awkward and and just, oh, my God, you know, what do I do with this? Oh. And I don't... 
the one thing that I'd kind of like to see is maybe you're right, Karen. And in, in, in profiling a, a psychopath, you're you're looking at that calculation angle. Is there room, do you think, for at least the question of authenticity of some kind of feeling growing be- between Lucy and, and Parker? Depends on if you want to go pure or not, because the psychopath really purely has no feelings. So if you want to make her more complex, I'm telling you, psychopaths are two-dimensional people. They, they don't have, they know ownership, they know jealousy, they do not know love, they do not know honest affection. So it depends on how far down the road you want to go with the psychopath angle. I guess it could be maybe just it could just be a confusion because she is so fixated on Morris. And, you know, this is the closest she's been to Morris since she was in the asylum. Uh, other than side, people. Yeah, she may decide that she wants to own him, too. OK. All right. Just just some thoughts to, to, to mull over, Sarah, as you as you evolve this relationship between Parker and Morris. Well, Let's 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 go into the final stage here. Let's let's take one last turn around the table because this has been fabulous and just give one last bit of of advice or summarize or or ideas or inspiration. Fill fill Sarah's pockets full of of literary gold. She can go and write this 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 dramatis epicus and make it happen. Uh, Karen, we'll start with you. Final thoughts for Sarah as she goes forward. I absolutely love this idea. I, like I said, I would buy a ticket in a minute. Come up with a good title. Come up with something strong, something that's going to kick everybody's ass because the title is going to be important. And the working title, you know that's weak, but come up with something good. <laughs> I don't know if that helped or not, but I'm, the title definitely, it, hook them in there. Yes, definitely. Yes, I, I'm not a titler. <laughs> that, that's title where comes last. Could, that, there you go. Exactly. Theme, theme, and title can come last. Absolutely. Ask for help from beta readers. Someone might come up with a kick-ass title for you. Mm, good point. Excellent. Just, uh, playing off of that, you could go with something Holmesy and like the case of the. Yeah. Whatever. We're trying to figure out what that would case would be, though. See, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's for another. That's for another brainstorming. The session. case of the bumbling psychic. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Mike? Final thoughts for Sarah? I, I think just I, I want Harry Parker to be a guy that we like and 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 are rooting for, and I think that's important. I think it's important that we see him as a character who's stronger than he thinks he is, and and I don't know. That's that's the sense I got as I was I was going through this. Is I like Harry and I want him to succeed, but I want I want to be rooting for him harder than he's rooting for himself almost. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to what Karen was saying during the 20 minutes with where you, you get the audience to uh, invest in your protagonist, in that yeah, character. Caring about the character. Yeah, exactly. Intimately. And, and, and part of that would be, you know, showing his strengths early on, giving, showing that he has the capacity to do it. He just doesn't apply it yet. Or yeah, whatever. maybe he actually figures out Lucy's the killer and then goes, no, she just can't do that. So that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <some, laughs> Maybe he thinks of it. Yeah. Morris tells him he's an idiot. Exactly. Exactly. And that's perfect. And that would totally affirm that Morris is a memory and not a ghost because Morris would know, but his memory wouldn't. Yeah. That's awesome. That's very cool. I, for myself, Sarah, I, I, I must echo what has been said. This is, this is a wonderful story concept and structure and the evolution as it unfolds, I think is going to be a, a wonderful dramatic experience. I, I, Karen's uh, uh, invocation of the psychopath, obviously given, given the set piece that has been laid out, the fact that she is committing murders uh, uh, to, to, to draw out Morris very clearly that was an accurate assessment on her part uh, uh and that research onto the into the psychopath's uh mentality i think is going to serve you in good stead i i don't the the notion of a two-dimensional character on stage is a challenge uh, uh and i think the biggest challenge for you is to create a a, a sympathy for Lucy as well to make the reveal at the end that much more dramatic. Uh, you know, we can't suspect Lucy uh, at all. And 
if we. That's if, why she's charming. Right, exactly, and and the, the 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 painting of her is going to be a very delicate craft of of showing this perfect porcelain mask and then showing the cracks in the mask, parsing them out very carefully. And you've got the dramatic sense to pull that off. I just there's there's. I like the idea of that confusion in Lucy. Uh, uh, I'd like her to have a crisis of some kind in the story as well. Uh, whether she doubts herself or or whether she she starts transposing her fixation onto Parker or something that gives her more of an arc uh, than than rather just being an uh, two dimensional antagonist playing games. And that that's a that's a personal thing. It might it might not serve the play very well, but that's that's something to look at to 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 give her uh, a stake in this and and a challenge uh, as well. So, all right. Well, Sarah, you know the rules now. Normally, I'd say if you publish this thing as a PDF or or self pub or trab pub, but in your case, I'm going to say now. Put up this play in your garage or uh, in community theater or off-Broadway, Broadway. It doesn't matter. See, I, I can talk the talk. <laughs> but but whether it happens in your garage or or in the... in the I, God, I can't name a single Broadway theater. Uh, but some Broadway theater, uh, let us know, please. First of all, do videotape that bad boy and send it to us because we're going to want to see that. Uh, uh, send us tickets if it's at all possible. And uh, we will have you back and we will gosh i'm trying to think if there's something other than knighting but honestly well we'll make you a producer no we don't want you to be a producer we'll knight you we'll just stick with knighting for now we would yeah, like to be a knight okay awesome <laughs> we will we will bring you back and we will knight you we will make you a knight of of the round table podcast <laughs> so, are you down with that ma'am I am absolutely down with that. <laughs> Outstanding. Sarah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for, for bringing something utterly unique to the round table and, and such a wonderful, unique feast it was. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for all the gold. <laughs> a lot of gold. I'm surrounded by it. There's, there's, there's wagons over there by the door. You can go ahead and use one of those. They're for free. So, <laughs> uh, Karen Lassart, this has been a delight. And, and I, I, your, your insights into character and, and into the pathologies of, of our villain and so on, uh, just really brought this whole, conversation to a marvelously delicious we're brainstorming level thank you so much man we appreciate it thank you for having me again if you'll indulge me could i give a shout out to my favorite canadian noir author axel howerton i know he listens to you every week <laughs> axel dude thank you man and yes consider yourself shouted Absolutely. what does what does uh, axel have out in the world these days um he has a novel called hot sinatra Hot yes, Sinatra? Really, yes. I want to really own this he, book. <laughs> you need to look it up, Hot Sinatra. He's got a couple of characters that go through different stories, but I highly recommend that one. Outstanding. I will definitely put that on the Amazon wish list. That's fabulous. Very cool. Uh, Mike Luoma, my, my, my mighty co-host for this episode, thank you so much, man. This has been epic. Oh, it's always a pleasure, man. And these just get better and better. I know, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's this magic that happens. It's like whatever happens, it's, it's going to be fabulous. The alchemy it's, stuff is awesome. <laughs> it is true magic. It absolutely is. And, and the part of the magic is you, dear listener. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. As much as we enjoy uh, bantering here on the Skype line and bouncing ideas off of each other, the notion that any of this literary gold is ending up in your pockets does all of our hearts good. We love that. So if you're digging it, if you're feeling the love, blog about us. Share a Facebook post or two. Uh, uh, we have a forum now on the Roundtable Podcast. If you've got ideas for Sarah's play, uh, hop on the forum and, and pop some ideas out there. There's there's all kinds of opportunities to continue this, this storytelling vibe. Uh, but... <laughs> 
right now i need to light a cigarette because holy crap that was awesome and and as 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 spent and exhausted as we all are now that our our story juices have flowed as it were uh the 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 miracle of the round table is that in just seven days this is going to start all over again we're going to have another courageous guest writer coming on and sharing their story ideas for workshopping goodness A, a, a bold and fabulous guest host pouring wisdom into our ears more writerly goodness and round table fabulosity to be had by all but it's seven days it's a long time i know i know tell me about it mike what what can what can we give unto our listeners that will make this next seven days before we start this all over again just fly by here's my thought write out a conversation between yourself and your favorite character and let them tell you what they want to do next. Ooh, it's very meta. I like that. Yes, indeed, because these characters do take on their own lives if you, give them, if you give them permission to do so. And that's a great exercise for that. Very cool. I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for good stuff. Look for... Look for What's the what's what's the 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 dirty dirty cider that you drink up there in Vermont? <laughs> the, the dirty mayor from Citizen Cider. There you go. Look for look for the glistening dirty mayor from Citizen Cider, uh, sitting at the back of your fridge that you didn't know was there. Look for look for uh, a seat in the theater you didn't think you had, but holy crap, there it is! If you look for all of this awesomeness, dear friends, I promise you, you will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.